0: I believe that our bodies and our psyches are inextricably connected, and that communication between them is two-way, rather than the mind simply controlling the body. In this episode, I'll tell you more about how I see the mind-body connection, and how that has affected my patients and myself. Hello, and welcome to the Stuff of Dreams. I'm your host, Amy Lawson, MD, practicing pediatrician. I also have a master's degree in depth psychology, specifically in Jungian and archetypal studies. My goal is to connect you with your dreams in a more fun and meaningful way so that you can interpret the messages your unconscious is sending. So this episode is going to be a little bit different than some because it's a little heavier on stories and no dreams till the end, although I do have three relevant dreams for you. Couple things I want to say before we start. The first is that it's super hot here again, so if you hear traffic noise, I'm sorry. But we would be dying if we didn't have the doors open right now. And the second is the air quality has been pretty bad the last week or two, and my throat is still recovering, so hopefully my voice won't sound too bad. But I have a lot to say, and I didn't want to put off this episode any longer. I started off thinking that this episode was going to be a mini-sode and actually recorded the intro that way, but I found that I have a whole lot more to say about it than I thought I did, and so we're going to turn this into a longer main episode. This week, we're going to talk about the mind-body connection, because I am a doctor who really believes in it. I can't say that I necessarily used to, but through my journey further into depth psychology, I've become more and more convinced. And because I've been open to it, I've seen more and more proof, in a way, as much as you can prove something like that. People have tried to prove it. People have done studies about the placebo effect and even the nocebo effect when people know they're not getting the active drug or ingredient or surgery or whatever and they still get better. But to me it's really hard to distill something like the mind-body connection down into something that's precise enough that we can measure it and scientifically, statistically prove it. Some doctors tend to just think of the placebo effect sort of as a weakness, right? Like, oh, these people are such sheep. It's all in their head, so if we tell them that we're giving them something that makes it better, then it makes them better. But I think that's losing a lot of the richness and the power of the connection between our minds and our bodies. The time of pandemic has given me a bit of time to reflect on this, and I was thinking about how it's been affecting us. I do a lot of well-child checkups now, so I'm seeing kids that we haven't seen since the year before, often, and looking at their growth charts. And, of course, it's not surprising that they're gaining weight. Their body mass index are increasing because they have to stay inside more. They're not at school. They're not at recess running around. They're not connecting with people as much. And it's ending up as weight gain. I mean, I've been gaining weight too. So has my husband. Like food is also a comfort source. And, and I'm hearing that a lot, that adults are, are gaining weight as well. So is it just a function of... We're all less active and wanting to eat more for emotional reasons. I mean, sure, that's probably part of it. But when I thought about it on a more symbolic level, I wonder if also, to some degree, our weight gain is like our bodies storing up energy because they're sensing something bad might come. Because we're all probably a lot more stressed and anxious right now, that leads to the release of stress hormones like adrenaline or cortisol. And that can lead to changes in our body's metabolism. So it felt a little better to me to blame my weight gain not just on eating too much because I've been stressed, but also on hmm, maybe my body is trying to prepare for some difficulty or deprivation that is yet to come. Not that that's a good thing, but it does connect me psychologically and archetypally with, you know, our ancestors who didn't have as much food ready as we do and who probably did need to store up weight even more than we did. So I mentioned that connection between stress and anxiety and the stress hormones, which the main one is adrenaline. The other name for that is cortisol. And I have been seeing a lot of signs of anxiety and stress in my patients, especially My teenage patients. When times are scary and teenagers are stuck at home and they can't go to school and see their friends and they can't play their sports and they can't get together and have big parties and they can't do any of that stuff that makes them feel normal and like they're growing up and differentiating a little bit from their families, it leads to stress. It leads to conflict inside. It leads to adrenaline release. And so I've been seeing a lot of kids with physical signs of how that stress is affecting their body. And so I've found myself talking with them about that a lot lately to try to explain to them why their bodies are feeling like this. Because you can imagine that when a teenager is stressed and anxious at baseline, whenever they start to feel these symptoms or these things going on in their body that they know are not quite normal for them that just leads to a heightened sense of stress and anxiety and more adrenaline production. And then they feel even stranger. And then they're worried even more that there's something wrong with them. And it's kind of a vicious cycle like that. And so sometimes I see my role as trying to get them to have a little bit more trust in their bodies again and not to immediately assume that something must be physically wrong with them if they feel an unfamiliar sensation. And so I've been talking with them a lot about what adrenaline, stress hormones, affect the most in their body. Because the two systems that it affects the most, in my experience, are the heart and the GI tract, the intestines, the gut. Adrenaline makes your heart surge. We know that. It makes your heart rate go up. It sometimes can make you start to feel your heartbeat more or feel even palpitations. And that's a direct effect of the hormone. But that's one of the feedback loops that you can get stuck in, for example, in panic attacks, right? Where you release all this cortisol and then you feel like you're going to die and you feel your heart like your heart's going to explode. So then you're worried about that. And that just leads to more stress hormone production, which makes you feel even weirder. And it's another one of those vicious cycles. But When I have teenagers coming in telling me, you know, oh, there's something wrong with my heart, I feel this heaviness or pressure or pain in my chest, I feel like my heart's beating out of my chest, or I can feel my pulse all the time, like when I lay down to go to bed, I can just feel my heart pounding in my body. I mean, of course, first I do the screening stuff and an exam, and we talk about whether they're still able to exercise and You know, if they're having fainting spells and, you know, all the all the medical stuff that we need to screen out. But it's usually pretty obvious from the history that there's nothing serious going on because they're not fainting and they're not losing weight and they're still able to climb stairs and, you know, all that stuff. So then I have to talk to them about why they're feeling those sensations. And often if you can explain to them why they're able to sense their heart more when they're stressed or anxious then they're not so afraid of it and sometimes it even goes away or they stop paying attention because they don't have to be on a heightened sense of alert that something's wrong with their heart. And it's it's the same with the with the GI tract. That's the other kind of symptoms that we see so much that don't tend to be true physical illness because stress can also show up as Non-specific abdominal pain—that's especially true with younger school aged kids, but but it can happen with with older kids too. So you've got the non-specific abdominal pain. You've got like the crampy kind of stuff. Um, sometimes the vague feelings of nausea, but they're never vomiting and they're not losing weight. So you know that it's not something really organically wrong. Or they get you know constipation or diarrhea, changes like that. All of those can be symptoms of what's going on in your brain and it can be symptoms of stress. We don't really think of the GI tract as being particularly smart, but it actually has a really large nervous system that's pretty complicated, and it can be affected by all the hormones and cortisol and adrenaline that's running around in our bodies. If it gets a little bit out of whack, if it gets a little bit uncoordinated in some way, that does lead to a lot of pain or cramping or changes in bathroom habits. (laughs) And so again, if patients are really worried about some of these symptoms that they're feeling in their bodies, if I can talk to them about why that's happening and about the effect of stress on their bodies, then they don't have to worry quite as much. I'll tell you about one patient in a de-identified way. I always change some, some details and things so that No one's going to be able to recognize themselves. I don't want to invade anyone's privacy and put it all out for you all to hear. But I had a patient who was a teenage girl who I hadn't seen before. You know, this is at my new job, which I've only been at for five or six weeks. I saw her in one of my first few weeks there. And she had this long history of both heart and GI stuff, actually. She had periods of her heart pounding and periods of feeling chest pain. She had constipation alternating with diarrhea. She had this vague sense of nausea and it sometimes being hard to swallow so that she didn't feel like she could get food down. But all this stuff was kind of intermittent and came and went. And I think she'd had some labs done and they were fine. She wasn't losing any weight. She was still able to you know go to school and do her normal things. This wasn't something terrible going wrong that she needed surgery for or cancer or inflammatory bowel disease or anything serious. And I figured it was probably stress and anxiety. So she came to clinic to see me and I took the history and did a whole exam and made sure I didn't find any new signs of something really wrong that we needed to do a bunch of tests for. And then I talked with her and her mom about this mind-body connection and the stress hormone stuff. She was a little bit hesitant about it. She was like, I don't consider myself a particularly stressed out person. And I was like, well, sometimes our bodies can try to tell us what our minds aren't quite ready to hear. That's something I've seen a lot in the past. I had a patient come in with chest pain intermittent and he was like, no, I'm not an anxious person. And I was like, well, when do these things happen? And he was like, pretty much it's just every time I go to the movies. And I'm like, hmm, why is that? He's like, well, because I was reading a lot about like the movie theater shootings. and, And then once I started going to the movies, that's when this chest pain stuff started. I just kind of looked at him. He was like, oh, your brain doesn't want to worry you by telling you that you're an anxious person. You're you're suppressing that kind of stuff, but it's coming out in your body because the mind and body are connected. And if you're refusing to feel it in one part, then the other part's going to feel it. So back to the first patient, my teenage girl patient. I had that conversation with her and I was like, okay, how about if we set up a phone call in a couple of weeks and I'll call you and we'll talk about how your symptoms are doing and I want you to be able to run by me any new symptoms that are happening, right? Because one of the things I want to try to do is help you to to build some more trust in your body so that you don't have to worry so much when something new happens. So let's make an appointment for two weeks. She was like, okay. So it's two weeks later. I see she's on my schedule. I take a big deep breath. Uh, How's this gonna go? Okay, so I called and hi, it's Doctor Lawson. How are you doing? Just calling to check in on you. And she said, "Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Oh, well, how's your how's your heart pounding stuff? Yeah, I haven't been feeling that much lately. Oh, good. Okay, what about your nausea? No, I've actually been eating okay. Hmm. Any constipation? No. Diarrhea? No. All right. Do you have any other new stuff going on that you want to be sure we talk about? New sensations in your body? I had a headache here and there, but I think you're right. I think it probably was just related to stress. And I hung up the phone and I was like, success. (laughs) I didn't do anything to fix her, but I put her a little bit more in touch with her own body and also gave her an avenue for, okay, and if new things do happen, I am going to be able to talk to the doctor about it. And the symptoms went away. I'm not saying they'll go away forever. They may come back you know, when times are more stressful in her life or whatever, but... I felt good that day because these were symptoms that she'd been worrying about on and off for months. And I would like to think that my conversation with her played some part in the symptoms resolving for now. I guess the bottom line is that I think that the mind and the body work together kind of in the same way that the conscious and unconscious work together, where if we repress certain parts of ourselves from our conscious life, they go down into our shadow, they go down into the unconscious and they gain more and more energy there and they come up in our dreams or our complexes. In the same way, I think if we repress things from our minds, they can come up in our bodies. Interestingly, and completely unexpectedly, I actually think the opposite is true also. I think that what we repress from our bodies can come up in our minds. I think that our culture has really divorced us from our bodies in a certain way. Because of the rational, scientific viewpoint that we have in Western culture where our mind is in charge and our body is just a machine that we occasionally take to the doctor to get repaired, just like you would take your car to the mechanic. But as we were saying earlier with psychosomatic symptoms, our bodies can tell us what emotions we're feeling. When we're refusing to feel an emotion in our minds, even if that's an unconscious refusal, it comes out in our body as chest pain or gastrointestinal symptoms or something else. I know many therapists who will focus on what an emotion feels like in their client's bodies so that the patient can start to recognize what they're feeling if they're someone who's kind of been divorced from their feelings by picking up sensations in their bodies. When I start to feel this prickly sensation on my skin and my heart start to beat faster, I know that I'm afraid. Something like that. But if we don't try to sense those emotions, it's the same as repressing things from our conscious to our unconscious minds. or repressing things into our bodies. I went back and forth for a while about whether to tell you this next story, wondering if it will be a really good example or if it will just make some of you think that I'm crazy, But I decided that if I'm really doing an episode on the mind-body connection, then I should probably tell you the story of what convinced me of the intense realness of that connection in the first place. So, of course, we think about it a little bit in medical school and we talk about it at least as far as, you know, psychosomatic kind of illnesses that aren't really in the body that are more in the mind. But that's about as far as my thought went along that subject for a really long time. One of the classes for my degree in depth psychology was a class called Psyche and Soma, which basically means mind and body. And this is the class that I was the most terrified of was taught by a dance instructor, actually, who also had a PhD in Jungian and Archetypal Studies. So she really was an expert on the connection between mind and body and on my kind of psychology. But I knew that significant parts of the class were going to require participation and movement activities and dancing or music or, I don't know, things that I did not want to do in public, even if it was just my class. Because I'm pretty self-conscious about my body and my ability to dance or express myself with it. And so I was approaching this class with a lot of dread and anxiety. I think the only reason that I was able to actually go through with it was that It was after I had had a big surgery on my foot, so I wasn't able to stand up and do strenuous physical activities or dancing or anything. I knew I was going to have to do whatever we were going to do from a chair, and that seemed a little bit safer. But I've never really trusted my body, not for a long time anyway. I can't say that I knew all this at the time. It's all come later through later work, but... I will tell you that I had cancer when I was 19. I had a big sarcoma in the muscles of my left thigh. I had surgery and radiation and chemotherapy for a year. And I think that... I lost a lot of trust with and connection with my body at that time because it had turned against me. I mean, I never thought about it in those terms, but I think that's what it felt like psychologically. Even before that, I mean, even when I was a child, I knew that my body wasn't going to be how I got ahead in the world. My brain was going to be because that's where my talents were. I remember playing sports and, you know, coaches making fun of me because I was such a slow runner or whatever. Like, it was pretty clear that my body was not my strength. And in the household and culture where I grew up, you played to your strengths and you did not spend any time or energy worrying about the areas where you weren't so good. So that's the background for why I was so afraid about this class. So, the way our school is structured is we do four weeks or so online from home, doing the readings and posting a lot online and having online discussions. And then in the middle of the quarter, we would have a residential session where it was two long, eight or nine or 10 hour days of in-person instruction with our class and the teacher. And that's the part that I was real, real afraid of because I did the movement exercises and things I was supposed to try at home in the privacy of my own room. Like that was okay, but I didn't want to feel like I was on display doing any of this stuff with other people. So one of the other things that my teacher did as part of her career was some body work, meaning something more intense than massage, like manipulating and laying hands on people's bodies to work with the energy or do some kind of therapy. And I was like, well, she won't be able to do that with the whole class, so I'm probably safe there. And nobody in my class really knows how to do that, so I think we're going to escape that. Well, I was wrong because she made us pair up and just see what came when we tried to feel the energy of each other or touch each other, you know, in a non-conflict kind of way. Because it turned out, unbeknownst to me, there were several people in my class who had done some kind of work like that. I was lucky enough to get paired with one of my good friends in the class who was a very calm and gentle, completely non-judgmental soul, who is probably the safest person that I could think of from that particular group of people for me to have to try to experience something like this with. And so I was like, OK, well, I do trust her, so it's going to be OK. And turns out that she has had training in Reiki, which I didn't know. But Reiki is some way of manipulating a person's energy through hands on or even hands somewhere near the body. Sorry, I can't describe it any better than that. But if you want to look it up, it's Reiki, R-E-I-K-I. And so I was like, "Okay, I'm here. I know I'm safe. I'm just going to open up and see what happens and try not to be like super defensive about all this, because all I have to do is sit here and monitor what happens in my mind while she does whatever she's going to do. So she started things off and there's like these procedures for like clearing people's energy and then touching certain pressure points. And it was all okay; It didn't feel bad or scary. I was like, all right, this feels kind of relaxing. That's about all I feel. And then during one part of what she was doing, she sat on the floor in front of me and she took my left ankle in her hands and she just held it for a while, like cupping my left ankle between her hands. And I felt this rush of emotions that was completely unexpected, that I didn't understand why they were coming then, but they were so strong that I couldn't ignore that something was happening. And I started to feel them and I started to cry because what it felt like was that that leg was getting loving touch from a friend who I trusted, who I knew had some abilities in healing somehow. My left leg has been the source of most of my body problems. My cancer was in my left thigh, so my leg has been weak for the last 20 years. And I've broken that ankle a couple of times and had to have surgical repair. And so I have long referred to that leg as my bad leg because it is compared to the other one. It's weaker. It's a little bit of a different shape because I've had radiation. It doesn't have as many muscles in it as before because I had to have some muscles removed with my cancer. And so I would often call it my bad leg or my stupid leg when I was blaming it for something. You know, I'd be like, oh, I can't go up the stairs that fast. My stupid leg, you know, just trying to like be flippant about it and smile and try not to make people uncomfortable that I was talking about my physical inabilities in some way. But when her touch connected me with my leg in a more direct way, I felt this surge of emotions that had to be coming from my leg because they weren't part of my mind. And I think they were emotions that had been repressed into my leg for years and years and years. And once they were released or whatever the right word for it is, I still not quite sure. I was connected with the deep sadness in my leg and I could feel how sad it felt and how guilty it felt about not being a good leg and not being a strong leg. I could feel its anguish about failing me. And about how it wanted to help me and it wanted to be strong and it wanted to let me do all the things that I used to be able to do and can't now. And it felt guilt and shame that it couldn't do that for me. But these were not emotions that I had spent any time thinking about in my mind or I think that I had ever really let in. I am very good at rationalizing. I'm very good at not feeling things when I don't want to. And I never spent time lamenting what I couldn't do physically. I know that sounds strange, but like I could do enough. I could walk. I could do stairs slowly. I could get around. I could go to work. I could grocery shop. You know, I could live my life. And so I didn't think about the fact that I was very limited. And when people would say something about it or I would point it out or we would be talking about it, the story I would always tell is that my leg might be weak, but I was just glad that I had it because it's true. My cancer doctors told me when they were developing which kind of chemotherapy they were going to use for me. That it was a good thing I got my cancer then, because if I had had it five years earlier, they wouldn't have had the chemotherapy to save my leg. And the standard of care would have been just to amputate my leg. But in the last five years, there had been advances in chemotherapy regimens, and they had one that they thought would save my leg now. And so that's all I thought about. I was like, okay, well, I can't complain at all about anything to do with my leg because I still have it. And I told that story to so many people. And in that rush of emotions from my leg, I could also feel its concern about that and its anguish as it heard me telling all kinds of people that it came very close to getting cut off. But I still had it, so I wasn't allowed to think about what it couldn't do. And so that very startling, striking experience where I burst into tears unexpectedly started me along the path of having to confront my attitudes towards my body and what emotions I might have been repressing that were getting stored up in my leg. I started paying a whole lot more attention to the somatic stuff and the body stuff, and then it started coming up in my dreams, and then I decided... I needed to work on that in a more structured way. So I actually got uh, my current therapist is a somatic therapist. So we do mind work through connection with the body, not hands-on stuff, but we talk about psychology stuff through what it feels like in my body as a way to try to reconnect me with my body as well as my emotions. And now all the judgmental voices in my head are coming up and saying, why are you telling the story? Are you really going to? put this out for people to hear. They're going to think you're insane. But it was a real experience for me and it changed the trajectory of my therapy and my personal work. And so I'm going to be brave and share it with you. Not that I'm encouraging you all to do the exact same thing, of course, but I use this as an example of how powerful the mind-body connection can be if we can be open to it. Or even if we're not particularly open to it, because I certainly never made a choice to try to get more information out of my body, but that chance experience in class showed me that it was important. I probably shouldn't say chance experience because I'm sure there was a whole lot more to it than chance. Synchronicity might be a better term. All right, now let's move on from Amy's storytelling hour to do some dreams, shall we? I want to give you three different dreams that show how the unconscious uses the mind-body connection because it often symbolizes damage to the psyche through using images of damage or threat to the body. The first dream is mine. Our extended families, Scott's and mine, have rented a really huge house out in the country. In every room, I see different people interacting somehow. I'm an adult, but I go outside to watch a big group of a bunch of the kids running and playing. Many people have brought their dogs, and the pack is out running around too, including several Newfoundland dogs. I follow them around the side of the house to the back, where there's woods and nature. Then I see large birds start swooping down and buzzing the kids and the dogs. I get closer, and a huge bird swoops down toward me. I can see its curved beak and sharp talons. These are bald eagles, and it's viscerally scary to have these predators coming at me, even though I don't think they'll actually attack us or the dogs, since we're bigger than them. The dogs have been barking at them, and the kids are absolutely shrieking, and I think I even screamed when the eagle flew right over my head. We all go to the back door to get back inside, away from the birds. And as we're going in, multiple parents are telling their children to be quiet. Stop screaming. They might disturb the neighbors if they're napping or something. Be more thoughtful. I feel like I need to stick up for the kids and say, uh, there were eagles zooming at us and threatening to attack, you know. I only say this half-heartedly because I know it won't matter to them. All right, so this dream takes place at a rented very large house with lots and lots of rooms it's out in the country and it's full of people from my family and from scott's family so that tells me that we're likely in the realm of our families and how we were brought up we're in the realm of the cultures of our family and how we were trained to be part of them and the house is a rented house it's not our house So that feels a little bit more temporary or impermanent. It feels like it's not quite somewhere where Scott and I belong or where any of us belong, really. It's a meeting place where we've all come together. So I go outside where a bunch of the kids and dogs are running and playing. I'm outside the house. I'm in nature. It's a little more free. And even though I'm an adult, I can remember the feeling of having fun just watching the kids and dogs run and play with abandon. We go around to the back of the house. So the backyard, the part that's hidden from the street, the part that's not quite on display. And there's like woods and trees and nature back there. So it's a bit more rustic. It's a bit more wild. And so that feels like we're in a place that's a little bit deeper in the psyche, a place where things happen that aren't necessarily for public consumption, for public view, because it's not the front yard. And they're all running around and then some bald eagles start swooping down and basically buzzing the kids and the dogs. And one even buzzes me. So what do those represent? Well, bald eagles are predator birds, right? They have those hooked beaks and big talons. They're carnivores. They're hunters. So they have a fierce kind of energy about them. This is a bird that actually could do some damage to you if it wanted to. I mean, it probably couldn't kill you, but it it could harm you physically. It's interesting that these are bald eagles because, you know, it could have chosen some other kind of eagles or raptors or some other bird. But bald eagles are most closely associated with our country, right? They're like a symbol of the United States, a symbol of the values of where we grew up. And I think that this dream was probably commenting a little bit about how some of those values that I was taught as nationalism and patriotism can do some damage sometimes. So the kids are screaming, and I even scream when the bird gets too close, and we all run to the back door to try to get back inside to shelter. And as we're all trooping in in a line through the door, there's multiple parents coming to see what in the world the fuss is all about. And their children are obviously upset. They've been screaming they're afraid. But the parents' response is to tell their children to shut up, stop screaming, be quiet. You might disturb the neighbors. They might be trying to sleep. You need to be more thoughtful of other people. And I feel like I need to stick up for these kids as somebody who witnessed it, because I'm like, there were eagles who were zooming over our heads and possibly threatening us and could have done some damage. Like, your children have a reason to be upset and to be screaming. But in the dream, I can feel a deep sense that it's not going to make any difference to them. So I just kind of say it half-heartedly, knowing that it's really no use. And I think this dream is pretty meaningful about one of the ways I was raised, because it was way more important to think about other people than ourselves. We were supposed to think about what other people needed, which is not so bad, wanting to help other people. But we were supposed to consider what other people thought about us. And that was more important than what we thought about ourselves sometimes, actually. That's kind of how we derived our sense of self-worth sometimes is whether other people were happy with us and telling us we were good at something. So to me, the more usual way for a parent to respond to their child who's coming in from outside, obviously afraid and screaming, would be comforting and trying to figure out what's wrong trying to figure out if there's something the parent needs to do to intervene but instead there's no thought for the children and their emotions it's all about the parents wanting them to be quiet the parents wanting them not to be seen or heard by the neighbors the parents wanting all the fuss to be stopped the parents trying to redirect the children from thinking about themselves and how they're afraid to be thoughtful and think about other people Now, I agree that there's a way to be too one-sided the other way, right? Like we, we should all be able to be thoughtful of other people and not be intensely selfish all the time. I'm not saying that we should all run and scream all the time and do whatever our emotions and instincts say we should do because we're the only ones that matter. That's not the point. But there is some kind of medium, right? Kids shouldn't just be shut down in their emotions and told that they're not allowed to have them. But for some emotions in my upbringing and culture and religion, they just weren't okay. We weren't allowed to hate. We weren't allowed to be angry. Even being scared was, you know, we were supposed to be able to talk ourselves out of that a little bit or rationalize it usually. And so to me, I think the message of this dream is really to equate the parents, the authority figures in the family, with those predator birds. And to show that some of those attitudes that they had, some of the things they tried to teach us were damaging. I've been doing a lot of work recently around trying to accept the full range of my emotions, even if they're negative, and not feel like a bad person for it or to actually even be able to express it at all. Because it's been really hard for me to express deep anger in the past. And so I think that this dream was sent to make me feel that emotion that I have at the end of the dream of I'm going to try to stick up for these kids, but I know it won't matter of these kids should be allowed to have their emotions of fear, but their parents don't care. And so this dream uses the threatened physical violence of the bald eagles to symbolize the emotional violence that these children were going through when they weren't allowed to have certain parts of their emotions. I'm realizing how I'm talking about the children in the third person because that's much more comfortable. But of course, all of these children and parents are parts of my psyche. And the parents' attitudes are something that I learned and became part of me, even though I may disagree with them. So the children in the dream really do represent a childlike part of me. Let's do someone else's dream. This is a dream from Reddit, of course, used with the dreamer's permission. I don't know if this dreamer is male or female, so I'm just going to call him a he. Last night, I had a dream that started off normally, but then a house near me caught fire, and the whole thing was in flames pretty fast. I got a hose from somewhere and put the fire out, but then the house caught fire again. I assumed I missed a bit, so I put the fire out again, paying more attention this time. It caught fire again, and I did the same thing. But this time, I walked over to the house and saw that the floor had fallen away, and underneath it was fire. But not just regular fire, it was like a lake of fire. I knew I wouldn't be able to do much, and I knew then that it wasn't safe there. So I left with everyone else, and we lived somewhere else, until one day we saw fire, and we knew it was the hole from before, getting bigger and spreading out more. Somehow, we knew it would happen before it did. After that, everyone was just moving away from the hole every time they saw it, and we knew that eventually the world would be nothing but fire. Life was just a game of cat and mouse against an unstoppable lake of fire until eventually we lost, and the whole vibe of the dream was really miserable. So talk about a threat to the body. In this dream, we have images of fire that's going to consume houses and people and everyone in the world eventually. But since we usually take dreams on an internal level instead of external I think this represents the dreamer's psyche instead and that there are fires going on that are threatening his house and his safety and all the people that make up all the parts of his psyche so he sees a house near him that has caught fire and he gets a hose and puts the fire out Interesting that it's not his house, or at least he doesn't call it his house. It's just a house that's somewhere near where he lives. That seems a little bit less threatening than the fire breaking out in his own house, which would really represent his own psyche or his own ego self, at least. He puts out the fire, and then it catches again, and he puts it out again. It catches fire a third time, and he realizes that... The fire has destroyed the floor so he can see the lake of fire underneath it. Fire and water are opposites, right? They can't exist together. And so I wonder what the fire and the water are representing in this dreamer's psyche. We usually say that water is the unconscious, but, you know, nothing works 100% of the time. And it doesn't strike me here that water would be the unconscious because he has such an ability to manipulate it right he's able to grab the hose and direct the fire exactly where he wants it to go and that's not really consistent with how we interact with our unconscious it's much more unpredictable and not quite directly accessible by us so it's going to be up to this dreamer to decide for sure what the fire versus the water mean for him particularly but in general, the fire is something that is destructive. It's something with a lot of energy and heat. So it could be some emotion like anger or passion or hatred. But there's some part of him that is experiencing this heat of feeling, feeling hot, feeling destructive, feeling out of control. So something in his environment is is threatening him in this way, whether it's something external or internal. I mean, I'm tempted to always blame everything on the pandemic, right? And it does sometimes feel like like our world is getting consumed or at least the world as we know it is being destroyed, um, but not everything can be the pandemic. So this is where we would need input from the dreamer to know for sure. But the hose that he's able to put the fire out with, at least at first, is some kind of cooling mechanism. He can direct it where he needs to go, and he can quench the fire, at least in certain parts. He can counteract it. He can take away its heat. And so I think this represents some part of him that has that ability to make things less dangerous, to take away the destructive ability of the fire, at least temporarily. But then eventually in the dream, he realizes that he's fighting a losing battle because he sees that. Below the floor of the house, which is just burning with normal fire, there's a lake of fire. So the house's foundation isn't even safe. The fire is deeper. And to me, that's an image of there being even more of a threat than he realized. Even the foundations on which this house is built are being threatened. And then he goes on in the dream to show how... The fire just keeps getting bigger. The hole where they can see the lake of fire just keeps getting bigger and spreading out and consuming more and more neighborhoods and houses and people until they know that eventually, even though they're able to run away from it for now, it's going to consume the whole world. And so this feels like an image of something that's really threatening him right now, something that he feels like he's not able to counteract, something that he feels like he doesn't have the ability to control and no matter what he does eventually it's going to kill him that sounds really uncomfortable and I'm and I'm sorry when anyone feels that way I don't really have enough detail from the dream description to know what this might mean in his life but this is one of those instances where I include a dream because it seems so universal in a way I mean, I think that so many of us can imagine something at some point in their life where it has felt like they're going to get consumed no matter what they do, and there's not really any hope. And so the unconscious might send some kind of, a, of an image like this when people are feeling that way. So here's what the dreamer had to say in response to my interpretation. There is one thing it could be. I used to get really panicky about what happens when we die, and since I was raised Christian, I've always believed in the idea of heaven and hell. One night I was thinking about how I could live a perfect life and then end up in hell because I chose the wrong God, and I had a severe panic attack. It was so bad that I went to church consistently for months after it. I don't really do anything people would consider Christian, and lately I've started noticing how unChristian my life is. So maybe the fire is the afterlife, and I'm refusing to confront what might happen to me if I keep living this way, or if I do end up choosing the wrong God. I've been putting it out of my mind and telling myself I can deal with it later, just like the fire in my dream. So that's certainly one possible interpretation of it for this particular dreamer that the fire represents something that he's been trying not to think about, but that just keeps popping up again and again. The fire threatening his body in the dream is really a fire threatening his mind and his psyche. And I can't end this episode without quickly mentioning one of my dreams that I actually featured in Minisode 8 about dream groups, because it's a really good symbol of physical threat being linked to emotional threat. Let me briefly recap the relevant parts of the dream. I'm in the main space of a school bathroom, and I have this Ziploc bag full of medicines. I know I need to take some of them once a day, but I also have two vials, one big and one smaller, that I know I'm supposed to take intravenously. The word chemotherapy comes to me, and I realize they're for cancer. I have cancer again. But in the dream, I can't feel where it is. I think that I should know how to do this, since I've been through it before, but I don't know how to put an IV in myself. I'm afraid to ask people for help, because it seems like they think I should be able to do it myself. But then new people come into the bathroom, including some new teachers, and they seem like they might help me. So this image of a child having cancer, that's a physical threat, right? That's something that is consuming or threatening to consume my body. And in the dream, I think I'm supposed to know how to treat it for myself. I'm supposed to know how to make myself better. Someone has given me these drugs and they're like, deal with it. You got to do it on your own. And I'm feeling so much pressure about that that I'm afraid to ask for help, even though I'm just a child. I think that this threat of physical harm in the form of cancer symbolizes some of the psychological harm that I dealt with in childhood. Kind of along the same lines of that dream where the eagles were buzzing the children. I mean, it's not normal for a child to think that they should be able to heal themselves. But that's kind of the dynamic that I got into because of my personality. I took care of everybody else's emotions from a young age. And so I was supposed to be able to take care of myself too. And so I think this image of me being expected to know how to treat my own cancer is an image of me being expected to know how to take care of my own psyche and my own psychological needs so that other people didn't have to, so that they could tend to their own wounds. I don't say this out of any kind of victim mentality. I mean, nobody had a perfect childhood and nobody had perfect parents, and everybody does the best they can in general, but everybody's wounded, parents are wounded, as well as children, and it's just reality. So I include this not as a, oh, poor me kind of thing, but just to show you how we still need to work on healing ourselves, even when we're adults. I think that's a good place to stop. I can't believe that I thought this was going to fit into a 20-minute mini-sode, but that's okay. Live and learn. In the next few episodes, we're going to cover bathroom dreams and dreams of the self with a capital S. As always, you can email me directly with dreams or comments at stuffofdreamspodcast at gmail.com. And please do. I'd love to hear from you. Head on over to my website at stuffofdreams.fireside.fm to find show notes for each episode and links. I want to thank you so much for listening. And if you liked it, I encourage you to tell a friend about it this week. Let's get more people fluent in the language of dreams. Bye for now. And I hope you dream tonight.